People say numbers never lie. Numbers do lie. You can make numbers lie. So understanding how to perform your due diligence, understanding how to go through that CODA process, which I call the strategic evaluation of a target area. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us, and he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, In addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. When we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record, but we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we've built a relationship with him and Eastern Union funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals. And people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got and assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, all you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, but besides that, you know the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com and his phone number 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Brian Chavis. How you doing, Brian? I'm blessed, man. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, and I am looking forward to our conversation. A little bit about Brian. He has syndicated nearly $5 million worth of multifamily properties. He's a multifamily investor and property manager. He's the author of the book, Buy It, Rent It, Profit, and he's based in Tampa, Florida. So with that being said, Brian, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, my background is nothing too decorative. I started in the multifamily industry, leasing apartments, worked my way up into acquisition, and then decided one day to venture off on my own. Really didn't have two nickels to rub together, so I had to come up with an idea and came up with an idea to write a book or a manual, and then just kind of traveled around and wherever anyone would 
listen to me or allow me to rent a room and just perform workshops, teaching people how to stabilize their property, which of course was my day job from nine to five uh, in the property management multifamily space. So basically it was just teaching people how to stabilize properties on things that I took for granted that were pretty academic coming from the industry, but quickly realized that a lot of people who are non-institutional investors, they didn't have the resource to the training and education that I did. So I've seen an opportunity to educate and train individuals. That's kind of really how it started. Well, I would love to learn more about that. What was the process that you took people through when you taught them how to stabilize their property? That was dependent upon who was in the room. So kind of my thing was it didn't matter who you were. You just write your problems down on the board when you came in, and I would solve it. And that was kind of the whole (laughs) plan kind of took off because people were actually getting there with no fluff. Back then, I really didn't know what a boot camp was. I didn't really understand what – I don't think funnel clicks were a thing of relevancy back then. But really, I had zero marketing. I just – was trying to build a name by solving people's problems. So they would come in and if they were dealing with evictions or they were dealing with unoccupied tenants, they were dealing with whatever it is, they were dealing with cash flow problems, whatever it was, I would, of course, give them the system and, and show them how to actually do it right there in front of the group. And I would do about 10 to 15 questions. And I had a manual. So I wrote mm-hmm. a book, which is ironically the Bite Rent and Profit book is the distant relative of this book. So I wrote this manual and it basically had everything, all the systems these individuals needed to know. So the systems, they identified the work that needs to be done. And then the systems then also told the users how to go about performing it. So that was my pitch on the operations manual. So they had everything they need in this manual. So I would teach them and then sell the manual at the end of the class for a hundred bucks. And that's kind of really was my thing and how I got started. And originally how I thought I was going to make it rich uh, so I can fund my own multifamily investments. And things started to take off. I eventually was published by Simon & Schuster. And the book eventually, Don't Despise Humble Beginnings, because uh, the selling it out of the trunk of my car, that book now is uh, one of the only books in real estate investing in the U.S. Library of Congress, Buy It, Read It, Profit. Bravo. That's pretty cool. For somebody that barely has a high school diploma, I feel like uh, that's something I can kind of hang my hat on and extremely proud of. But yeah, so that's kind of how I got started. Got in with Simon & Schuster, which was a tremendous blessing. Actually, we all know they're one of the world's largest publishers. How'd you get in with them? That's another funny story. So I was working with a boxer named Winky Wright at the time. And Winky Wright was fighting, I think, Tino Trita, dad. So I was with Gary Sheffield and met Gary Sheffield at the New York at that time for the Yankees. Winky introduced me to Sheffield. Sheffield was trying to get involved with buying multifamily, wanted to deploy some money in that space. A-Rod was doing it. So A-Rod kind of convinced him, hey, this is a good thing. So he came to me. Winky was like, hey, this is a guy you got to meet. So I, of course, started basically consulting and teaching these guys for free. And I think that's something else for some of your listeners. There's some value in that. I wasn't charging these guys. Most people were like, why didn't you charge them? They got so much money. And at the end of the day, you had to remember, I had zero brand. No one knew who I was. So I was trying to build a name. And for me, it was giving knowledge away for free at the time and building a reputation. And so that's what I was doing. And I was helping him with a lot of his real estate deals. He was writing a book called The Inside Power. And the guy, Vigliano, from Vigliano & Associates, his book agent, 
got on the phone with me because he wanted to ask me a few questions for the writer that was writing the book about Gary getting involved with real estate and how he met me for Gary's book. So I began to talk and then the guy was intrigued. He's like, what do you think about multifamily? What do you think about New York? What do you think about, started asking me real estate related questions. So I gave him a 30 minute seminar and then he was like, you got any books yourself? It's like, oh, I mentioned that. Absolutely. I got a manual here that I've been selling out of the trunk of my car. So he was like, send it over to me. So I immediately FedExed it and didn't hear from him, went to the fight, which was almost a month later, and I hadn't heard from him. And then I get a call from uh, when I was in Vegas at the fight, and it was him, Figliano, and he was uh, David. And he was like, uh, hey, look, we've read your stuff. We love it. We want you to come to New York. We think we can pitch you to a, a few major publishers here and think we can make something happen with this manual thing you got here. Great. When do you want me in New York? Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say tomorrow. So, so, so I ended up going from Vegas to New York, and the rest was history. And I remember Simon & Schuster walking in there. And it's funny because Joel Osteen was in there at the time. I didn't know who he was. And so I, we're both sitting in the waiting room. <laughs> and he goes off to his agent. So I go off to mine. Of course, we have completely two different trajectories. I should have went with him if I had a hindsight. <laughs> Should have followed him to his meeting because it worked out much better than mine. So we go in and Simon Schuster was like, how many people are bidding? And I had my book agent who was trying to negotiate. Basically, Simon Schuster said, hey, listen, we don't care who's bidding. We want this book. And that's kind of how it all got started and uh, done a rewrite of the book and then wrote another one called The Landlord Entrepreneur just last year that I launched with them. So it's been a really good relationship to this point with Simon Schuster, and that's kind of how that all got started. Oh, man, what a fun story, and thank you for sharing that. With that book, the original one that you were selling out of the trunk of your car and at the meetings, you asked the attendees to write their problems on the board when they walked in the room, then you would solve them. What were some common problems that they had that you solved? Most of the common problems revolved around the lack of systems. And they range from I move tenants in, they're destroying the unit, I move tenants in. So a lot of the problems were based on is because these individuals did not understand that in real estate investing, like most books glorify, were about the brick and mortar. But real estate investing, when you're buying multifamily or you're buying apartment buildings or rental property in and in itself, it's a long-term strategy. Therefore, there has to be some systems in place to be able to operate day to day. And I think these individuals came in with a, a very glossy idea of real estate investing and didn't really quite understand that it was a business. Mm-hmm. And so I had to kind of teach them to develop a franchise mindset, which means, and I mean a franchise, meaning that systems run the whole entire business and the systems predict the profitability and not necessarily buying low and then selling high. Like a lot of books talk about transactions, transactions, brick and mortar. Bricks and mortars never paid me rent. People pay rent. So just basically a lot of the questions come from the lack of understanding that you're dealing with your prospect demographic, how to deal with them, the rules, the regulations, the the systems that are involved with dealing with the tenant when they're a prospect, when they become a tenant, and then when you're moving the tenant out. So really just basically getting them to understand that this was a business. And then the idea is, okay, it's a business. How do I get it organized? And then that's when the manual came out and when I would walk them through the manual and solve their problems through showing them the systems that they needed. Because in property management in most states, landlord-tenant laws dictate how we have to react to certain issues that may arise. So you need to have these systems in place to keep you out of trouble. So 
It was a lot of problem solving, but it really basically stemmed from the lack of knowledge and understanding getting into this business. And then now the perspective is, you know, this market, a lot of the questions that I get are, how do you operate at lower cap rates? How do you decipher making a deal happen in this market? How to evaluate net present values, IRRs, how all those things come into play? How do you create or generate cash flows from assets that are throwing off these lower cap rates? So it's a lot of the same, even way back then, even to present day. The market is a little different. The value is a little higher, we know, but depending on the class property that you're looking at, class A, B, C, so on. But pretty much the gist of it is in the problem solving and making this thing work is really understanding that it's a business and how to run it from an operational standpoint, how to have both an asset manager's hat and a property manager's hat, how to wear those two hats. What's one specific tactic that we can implement if we want to have a franchise mindset? One specific technique one can implement For me, it's kind of tough to say which one. It really depends on what it is you're trying to do with the project. So at the end of the day, if it's a value-add play, what is one technique one can implement, I think, is really making sure that you step back and you organize and operate from a SEOTA standpoint, which I call a strategic evaluation of a target area, understanding who your prospect tenant is. Mm -hmm. I think it's always been the thing that's kept me out of trouble. It's really understanding who that prospect tenant is, understanding the demographics and psychographics. Nowadays, that information is pretty much everywhere. When I first started, you had to dig for it or pay for these expensive reports to get that. But that information is pretty much everywhere on the internet now. So really understanding who your prospect tenant is is key before you get started. And what information do we need to know about the prospective tenant? Okay, good question. So really, I'm trying to paint a picture, a profile. So I want to understand, number one, the demographic. That's who they are. Psychographics is why they choose one unit versus another. So it's really the same thing that Walmart, Walgreens, CVS. When you go in, if you remember back in the day, they used to have those short receipts. Now they have these long receipts that are about as long as the Dead Sea Scrolls. (laughs) But it's all that information is basically offering you coupons based on your habits. So the idea of collecting information on my prospect tenant based on their habits, understanding their employment, average household size, their demographics, which means who they are, psychographics, which the why. So compiling all this information gives me a great perspective and an understanding of how I need to stage my rental units, curb appeal, what the focus is. I just took down a project in downtown St. Pete on Facebook every day from the property and kind of really show everyone how I'm turning this property. We went from the average 775 rents. I'm already up to a thousand dollars right now in the rents and people are scratching their heads trying to figure out how I'm doing it. But it's because I understand my prospect tenant well before I ever even took the project down. So now I'm catering the whole entire property, not based on my personal preference or what I want to see there, but my prospect tenant's personal preference. And that's everything from the outside of the unit to the inside, the way it looks, the way I have them show the rental units, everything, the advertisement, the way we speak about the property, everything is catered to that prospect tenant's demographics and psychographics. The 775 to 1,000 in rent, incredible jump. Did you have to invest? October to October. We just purchased it in October, so I'm not even in a year yet. Oh, yeah, not even 12 months (laughs) How much have you invested per unit to do that? That's a good question. Less than $1,000. That's even a better jump now in my mind. Exactly. What are some specific things that you've done on that property? 
Another good question. Some of the things that I like to focus on is I knew who I wanted to compete with. Everyone thought that I was competing with another property, like properties in the area, but I knew that like properties in the area lacked professional management. I knew they lacked the understanding of the demographic. Who I was going after was all, if you look at downtown St. Pete, you see all the cranes, you see all the high rises, all the new class A product coming out online. That's attracting a lot of individuals there. That was the demographic that I was going after and everyone thought I was crazy. But I'm trying to go after that demographic. So my pitch was why rent at 1400 Come rent from me at 1000 Get the same area. Get the benefits. You want the free Wi-Fi, there's a coffee shop attached to my building. You can go there and get the free Wi-Fi. You want the fancy weight room, you go two blocks. There's the water. There's the bay. You got all the equipment out there that the city put out there for free. So I didn't really feel like I had to compete with amenities with these companies where I had to compete with them. The larger institutional guys was the professional management and then the way the unit looked and felt to the prospect tenant when they enter in the unit. So I focused on amenities, ceiling fans. I put in high-end fixtures. We have these cool little faucets when you put your hands on them in the bathroom with the LED light lights up and lights up the water stream so they don't have to turn on the lights and disturb anybody in the studio. Or It's just thinking about everything about that tenant and really just focusing on their needs and always having a wow factor when they come in. And that wow factor could be something as simple as a really cool ceiling fan. So you can go on Facebook and see some of those videos. And I show you, I got this oscillating ceiling fan from Home Depot with two little fans at the end of it. They blow. It's just really industrial and urban looking and really cool. And based on sensory, when you move, light turns on. it got a remote control. You can turn it and rotate the whole entire unit or just the fans. So just really cool little things like that that really target that demographic. And when they leave, Park Plaza, whether or not they rent from me or not, they remember me. And ultimately, I'm just trying to create that experience. And I let downtown St. Pete do the work. They're pushing the amenities. So I let (laughs) let the city do all the work. I've just been piggybacking on the location and focusing on the professional management. That $1,000 a unit that you invested in them, how is that budget broken out? In the due diligence process. So when you buy a property, you go through that due diligence period. Let me know if I'm explaining this right way, if this is what you're interested in. Well, what I was asking, you mentioned all those different things you had in those units, like the ceiling fans, the fixtures. So within that $1,000 budget, how do you allocate each of those items approximately? Just to give us an idea of what was the bigger ticket item versus the smaller ticket items. Okay, sorry. So I go with the wow factor. So what I feel that they're going to see, obviously this is a studio apartment, so their eyes are going to fix right to the kitchen. They already had the backsplashes from the previous owner, so I didn't really have to do much there. So then the idea was we spend the money on the fixtures, the faucets, and then the ceiling fans. Those were just abundantly clear that they were outdated. They were actually brand new ceiling fans that the previous owner had in there. Mm-hmm. They were those old wooden fans, but that's the first thing you see when you yeah. walk in. So that was the first thing I got rid of. So the money was spent on the ceiling fan and on the refrigerators and the stove the appliances. So you want stainless steel, and then you want the brushed nickel, matching ceiling fan, the urban type look and feel. So the focus was really on the appliance packages and faucets and, and things of that nature. And so those are your bigger ticket items. Okay. And how do you spend a thousand dollars on refrigerator, stove, ceiling fans, fixtures, lights that turn on when you move? 
Seems like that would be more, right? Well, yeah. You also have to think these are studios. So these are much sure. smaller items, the refrigerators and things like that. So we're getting the little smaller units. The ceiling fans are averaging right around three to 400 bucks. The faucets we're always getting ones on sale or discounts. So yeah, I just try to buy in bulk when I see the discounts. I have, of course, the Home Depot savings package or whatever it is that they have. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's not a lot. There's only the bathroom faucet, the kitchen faucet, and the ceiling fan. Those are your major amenities that we've added in. Okay, so the refrigerator and stove is not included in that $1,000? Sometimes. Sometimes I have to spend on that. But if I do spend on the refrigerator or stove, I'm usually trying to get the scratch and dent stainless steel from Home Depot out of the package. And there's tons of them. You just have to ask where they are. Sometimes you have to go and pick them up. <laughs> but uh, How much are they usually? I just bought one for three forty nine. Wow, that's good stuff. With this property, what's the projected hold period? Terminal value, probably somewhere right around fourteen years. What type of financing you have on it? Cash. All cash, no debt. No debt. What was the purchase price? Two point six. And was that syndicated or was that your own cash? Syndicated. What are the projected returns on a property with no debt for 14 years? Starting out, your entry cap, you're somewhere right around six. You're coming in at around six cap, and then we'll probably exit somewhere right around an eight. And for the vast majority of these guys, it's more of the efficiency and not the actual cash on cash return, even though the cash return is extremely important. And please understand that's important. It's also the IRR, the efficiency from which these guys will get their money back. When you're dealing with usually individuals who are 50, 60 million, they're looking to put their money into real estate. They're not necessarily cash poor. So they would rather benefit from the tax deferrals. And again, these returns are not factoring the cost segregation, factoring in any of the other ways we generate a return for our investors. But just straight cash on cash, we're looking at a 6%. And then we're also looking at an IRR and upwards of 13, 14%. And what type of structure do you do with your investors on a deal like this? There's many different type of waterfalls, and we can get really far in the weeds with that. But I guess a, for this um, one in particular, this one in particular is based on performance. Anytime I come to a deal, it's usually no less than 20 to 30 percent equity stake, and then performance based on waterfalls, IRRs, various different hurdles that we have as payout. Sometimes there's a PRIF, sometimes there isn't. But uh, typically, on this one? I'm sorry. Was there a prep on this one? No, sir. No. That's incredible. When you think about a deal and you're analyzing it, how do you determine if you should put financing in place or pay all cash? That's another good question. You know, and I'm sure there's someone that will always argue this, but you know, after 2008, one of the things that I learned in 2012, I pretty much lost everything. Not necessarily in 2008, but in 2012, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, did not have insurance. And so I pretty much had to sell and liquidate everything and start over from scratch. So when I did, and I've gone through the losses and and gone through some of the things that I've gone through, I quickly realized that banks weren't necessarily partners. For me, being able to raise money, and, and many will argue, and I do not disagree with people saying use leverage, and I'm not saying I'm never going to use leverage again. I will, but for this deal, I just didn't think 
it made sense. If I'm going to use leverage, I'll leverage through the appreciation of this asset because of its location. I'll use Park Plaza as a bank and they can look to use Park Plaza as leverage for the next deal versus actually bringing in the bank right now. Then I have a little bit more bargaining chips. I will not be at a disadvantage. Then I can go after the more non-recourse loans, be a little bit more aggressive, whereas I'm going to them and looking to shop a deal with them. We can already have a decent-sized portfolio and then begin to lend against it, whether it be bridge loans or deployment of various different products that are out there that exist through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac that cater to multifamily. But for me, if I did not have to pull that lever, Right now, it just made more sense to me after what I've gone through and some of the things I've seen to have a few assets that we had outright that we can then use as bargaining chips further down the road. What's your best real estate investing advice ever? Best real estate investing advice ever. Man, there's a lot out there. I would say my best advice that I receive is that numbers do lie. People say numbers never lie. Numbers do lie. You can make numbers lie. So understanding how to perform your due diligence, understanding how to go through that CODA process, which I call the strategic evaluation of a target area, really understanding how to perform that to me has been the best advice that I have gotten is really understanding. And what that means, numbers do lie, is making sure that you perform your due diligence, especially when you're dealing with multifamily. You always want to make sure you're performing your due diligence. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is m. B-E-L-S-K-Y at easterneq.com. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net. All right, Brian, what's the best ever book you've read? The Bible. Best ever deal you've done? Park Plaza. <laughs> <laughs> What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Being too eager. Best ever way you like to give back? Education, training. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about you and get in touch with you? We have a summit coming up October 29th and 30th here in the Tampa Bay area. We'd love for them to come out to the summit at the Holiday Inn West Shore, brianchavis.com. Uh, B-R-Y-A-N-C-H-A-V-I-S.com or buyitrentitprofit.com. And they can find out information about the summit, just buyitrentitprofit.com backslash BRP summit. Brian, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your thought process, the case study with raising rents from 775 to 1000 how you do it, how you think about it too, with understanding the prospective tenant and knowing who they are and why they choose one unit over another, the really strategic way that you looked at it from the deal we discussed where you've got the amenities built in to the surrounding area, coffee shop, the weight facility on the bay, and you're less than the Class A property a little bit further in. 
really interesting and thank you so much for being on the show again hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon thank you sir appreciate you have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called tough decisions listen to dan and danae hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email that's toughdecisions.net